Well, we get to embark on a new book this morning, the book of Titus, kind of calling it Transforming the Church. And I mentioned last week that Titus really uh, offered us just tremendous words of Paul that, that fit well with what we presented as a a vision for Calvary Bible Church in this coming year and subsequent years. And so here we go, Titus, the book of Titus. Now, since it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, I think it only fitting that, that I offer the following illustration. I was trying to think of an illustration about transformation, having to do with our transforming church and then with sanctity of life, this is uh, what just popped into my mind. And so we're going to throw a few things up on the screen for you and talk about transformation. Hopefully. (laughs) There. The first picture, conception. Let's talk about the, the transformation of even a human being in utero. Utero. Fertilization happens when the sperm meets and penetrates an egg, also called conception. At this moment, the genetic makeup is complete, including the sex of the baby. And within about three days after conception, the fertilized egg is dividing very fast into many cells. It passes through the fallopian tube into the uterus where it attaches to the uterine wall. The placenta, which will now nourish the baby, also starts to form. Next picture. One month later, the baby is developing face and neck structures, heart and blood vessels and lungs, stomach and liver. At two months, the baby is now a little over half an inch in size. Eyelids and ears are forming and you can see the tip of the nose. The arms and legs are well formed. The fingers and toes grow longer and more distinct. At three months... The baby is now two inches long and starting to move on its own, and the heart is beating. At four months, the baby is now about four and a half inches and 3.5 ounces. The baby's eyes can blink, and the heart and blood vessels are fully formed. The baby's fingers and toes have fingerprints. Man, it's great looking at all your faces. I just see all these smiles, these big-time smiles. I'm like, this is cool. At five months, we're talking now about a 10-ounce, 6-inch long baby. The baby can suck a thumb, yawn, stretch, make faces. Movement can be felt by mama, and it's time for an ultrasound. At six months, the baby weighs about 1.4 pounds now and responds to sounds by moving or increasing their pulse. With the inner ear fully developed, the baby may also be able to sense being upside down in the womb. They're getting a little, whoa. Seven months, the baby weighs about two pounds, six ounces, and changes position often at this point in pregnancy. Generally, babies are now viable if they were to be born prematurely. Time to start taking those birthing classes. At eight months, the baby weighs almost four pounds and is moving around often. The baby's skin has fewer wrinkles as a layer of fat starts to form under the skin. Between now and delivery, your baby will gain up to half their birth weight. Nine months. On average, a baby at this stage is about 18 and a half inches, weighs close to 
six pounds. The brain has been developing rapidly and the lungs are just nearly fully developed. And then finally, happy birthday. This, friends, was the miraculous transformation of a human being from conception to birth. And over these next nine months or so, you will experience the miraculous transformation of Jesus' church. Compliments of the book of Titus. And again, we picked it because of some of the themes in Titus, and especially themes of leadership and discipleship and evangelism. So let me just give you some preliminaries about the book of Titus. We, we don't know a lot about the man Titus, um, except the little bit that scripture tells us. We know that he was a Greek. He came to faith possibly in Antioch. But he also didn't believe that he needed to be circumcised. Paul backed him up on this, not requiring it either like he had for Timothy. Titus seems to be a younger man like Timothy who accompanied Paul on his missionary journeys. Sometimes staying in one place for a period of time to establish a church or showing up to a church to minister to that church in specific ways. We know that he went with Paul and Barnabas to Jerusalem And he also served in Corinth, Crete, and Dalmatia. Dalmatia is modern-day Yugoslavia. And like his protege, Timothy, Paul was also very close with Titus. He poured much into Titus' life. In his letter to the Corinthians, he calls Titus his, his brother, his partner and fellow worker, a messenger of the church, even a glory to Christ. That's kind of a... A cool title. And then in the book of Titus, he refers to him as his true child in a common faith. Titus was one who was not afraid of ministry or getting his hands dirty with even difficult situations. He was the one who had to deliver Paul's severe letter to the Corinthians, which was Paul basically taking him behind the woodshed. Then he remained there in order to help them get back on track. Paul greatly enjoyed the company of Titus. He was comforted by Titus's coming and his good report that some of the Corinthians had indeed repented. After Crete, Paul invites Titus to join him in Nicopolis for the winter. Titus is a man with an earnest heart to do the hard things of ministry. Now, regarding this book of Titus... It is one of Paul's letters that make up the pastoral epistles, letters written to Titus and Timothy concerning pastoring of churches. For Titus, it would seem that he and Paul founded the church in Crete sometime between Paul's first and perhaps second Roman imprisonments. Paul then left Titus there in Crete to continue to build up the church, uh, establishing it and, and making it strong. As Paul went on to Macedonia, it was then somewhere maybe between 62, 64 AD that Paul wrote to Titus to remind him of some of the things that needed to be done in these fledgling churches of Crete. Now, speaking of Crete, it is a large island in the Mediterranean, some 160 miles long by 35 miles 
wide to the southeast of Greece, the southwest of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. It has an area of approximately 3,200 square miles, so it's just a little smaller than the big island of Hawaii. It boasts a mountain range, which runs the length of the island, even capping off at its highest peak at 9,000 feet. The mountains kind of slope downward to the uh, southern coastline, so most of Crete is inhabited on the northern side. The Tyndale Bible Dictionary tells us this, a little bit more about Crete. Because of its location and its relative fertility, Crete has been a prize of war and commerce. The island was conquered by Rome in 67 BC and became a separate province. The inhabitants prospered under the Romans and later under the Greek Christians, the Byzantines. There were the Saracens, the Muslims, who occupied the island then for over a century, uh, going back to 823 to 960 AD. And then after centuries of Christian leadership, it was conquered by the Turkish Sultan and civilization languished. Now we're talking uh, 1669 to even the uh, late 1800s. In the 20th century, Crete has been a part of Greece, except for a period of German occupancy during World War II. Now, let's go back to Paul's day, as that's what we are most concerned with. We know that while on his way to Rome for his trial before Caesar, Paul's ship sought refuge in an area of Crete called Fair Havens near the city of Lycia. And then after some time there, but realizing that the harbor was just not suitable for spending the winter there, they tried to press on to another Cretan city known as Phoenix. They came across strong winds, which started to blow them slightly off course, kind of south to a, another close-by island called Clauda. They tried to use Clauda to kind of shelter themselves as they moved along until they got completely blown off course, even some 600 miles off course when they shipwrecked then at the island of Malta. Now, Paul didn't have any really tremendous things to say about the Cretan people. In fact, when we get to Titus chapter 2, verse 12, we will see that he even speaks of one of their, their own prophets saying, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. How about that for a description? However, the Tyndale Bible Dictionary uh, does say that the gospel must have made quite a difference there. For today, even, the name of Titus is honored. It's honored in many villages and churches and monasteries there in Crete. So there's a little bit of background for you. Let's get to our text. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles, if you haven't already, to Titus chapter 1, where this morning you will see Paul's salutation, the, the beginning, the opening, uh, his greeting uh, for this letter, which includes um, some truths as to what he believed in, what propelled him to fulfill God's call on his life, even as a missionary. In fact, in the, this, this opening of these four verses, Paul reveals six foundational characteristics of the church. And of course, at its core, any church, including this one, is made up of believers, the redeemed, which contained then what we might call the basic genetic makeup of the church, including some of the characteristics that 
Paul lays out for us. And then over time, of course, the church there in Crete will grow and mature. And as the letter continues, and we will see many of the ways that a church is transformed and changed, built into the primary mechanism that God uses here on earth for the advancement of his kingdom. So with that being said, go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. This is Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is according to godliness, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested, even his word, in the proclamation with which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of God, our Savior, to Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, when I was looking at this, it's interesting because in, in Greek text, they don't have punctuation. So we put in our, our punctuation. But this would seem to be kind of one of those classic Paul run-on sentences, right? Comma, 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 comma. Just kind of, he just keeps going there. Um, in any case, let's consider these six foundational truths of the church that, that Paul expresses in, in these first few verses. And the first has to do with himself. He speaks about the authority, Right? His own authority in this case, when he says in verse one, Paul, a bond servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul identifies himself uh, two ways that he commonly does as a bond servant, but then also as an apostle. The, this word bond servant is used many times by New Testament writers in identifying themselves at the beginning of a letter. We see this from Peter and James and Jude. They all join Paul in referring to themselves in this way. Now, the Greek word here is doulos. And my, my kind of go-to uh, Greek dictionary source defines doulos as being a slave. One who is in a permanent relation of servitude to another, his will being altogether consumed in the will of the other. Now, of course, bond servant does come from bondage or someone who is bound to serve with the most common understanding being in that involuntary sense. But there's also another way that the Bible presents doulos and it's as a metaphor for those who are serving voluntarily, implying obedience and devotion. Now, I'm always intrigued to see whether translators have chosen the word servant or they've chosen the word bondservant or they've chosen the word slave when this Greek word doulos gets translated. And I think because of our, our more modern, even American understandings, the word servant or bondservant just, just tends to come off a bit softer than slave. For us believers to say that we are servants of Christ versus slaves of Christ, I don't know, it just seems kind of a little on the wet noodly side for me, right? Friends, the truth is our identity has been radically 
redefined by the gospel. The scripture teaches us that we have been set free from sin. That we have been enslaved to the sin, set free from it now, and that we have been bought with a price. And the price is no less than a human being's blood. The blood of Jesus. A human being who is also God. And therefore we have become his slaves. Now what's interesting about this is that in calling himself a slave of God. Paul is clearly showing God to be his authority. The authority over him. The one that Paul is in subjection to. But when he uses this other term, this next term, apostle, now Paul is demonstrating the authority given to him by Christ Jesus. And of course, apostle, you might remember from having talked about it before, it means sent one, one who is sent or ambassador or messenger. And in this context, it refers to one sent by, of course, Jesus Christ. Originally, it was used of the 12 apostles as they were the ones who were um, kind of divinely commissioned eyewitnesses of Jesus along with his resurrection. And even when the apostles picked Matthias to replace Judas in the book of Acts, he was one who had accompanied the other apostles and Jesus at all times and had also been a witness to Christ's resurrection. Now, Paul made claim to apostolic authority because of the way Christ called himself into ministry when, of course, he appeared to him personally on that road to Emmaus. So on one hand, Paul sees himself as completely under the authority and control of God. And on the other, he acknowledges his own divine authority given to him by God as an apostle, for the purpose of communicating the gospel, and for the purpose of planning churches, and for exercising authority over the church. Now, for us here in 2023, we also need to acknowledge that we are slaves of Christ. And we are under the headship of Christ as the church And yet we also have positions of authority inside the church, such as our our leadership and and people like the elders. This brings us to the second foundational truth that Paul relates in uh, in these verses, also in verse one. And we call this the chosen, the chosen. Back in verse one, he said, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those who. Chosen of God. Now, we're not going to to spend a lot of time here, though we could spend, well, I was going to say many servants because we already have. We did spend many uh, messages on this subject. I think we fleshed it out pretty well last year when we had our Salvation and the Sovereignty of God series, focusing a whole message on what it means to be chosen, elected, predestined by God for salvation. I would refer you back to those messages uh, to have a more complete and thorough understanding of what's going on here. But we will say this. Now, what is interesting to me here is that we see two dynamics at work. We have the fact that God chooses who he will save, but also the fact that someone must exhibit faith 
to be saved, right? So you, you go, well, okay, which is it? Is it God's choice or is it, um, uh, is it me being, uh, having the, the faith? God's choice or man's faith? And the answer is yes, right? Both, both. We learn from scripture that God has chosen individuals for salvation from before the foundation of the world. And it is in this sense that he has elected or predestined them in eternity past. Let me just just offer just a quick clarification. That is, God is the one who saves us through Christ Jesus. He is the one who, who does this work of salvation. We are called to respond to his work by faith right but 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 looking back even to eternity past we understand uh, from ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 to 5 this has paul writing of god the father just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through jesus christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will that is uh, there our salvation, that adoption as sons. Now, we learned back in our, our study of last year that he did this because one of the consequences of our sin is death. Not just physical death, but of course, spiritual death. And because of this spiritual death, none of us can, none of us would choose God because we are not even able to do so because we're dead we are dead and absolutely unable to come to god on our own in fact we are even hostile to god and unable to please him in any way shape or form romans 6 uh, 8 verses 6 to 8 tells us that the mind set on the flesh is death but the mind set on the spirit meaning the holy spirit is life and peace Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This was all of us prior to God saving us. Therefore, since we would never choose God, he had to first choose us. And then in his perfect timing, his Holy Spirit would draw us to himself. It would remove those blinders. It would free us from the snare of Satan and even cause us to have faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Which is to say, grammatically speaking here, both the grace and And the faith are both gifts of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Because God knows if it was left up to us and we could have a hand in our salvation, what would we do? We'd boast. We'd boast about it. Now, we exercise then that faith by repenting, believing, receiving Christ. As Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. And then in John's own words, but as many as received him to them, he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. 
in John 1 and verse 12. And again, I just would say for a more in-depth explanation, again, of these doctrines of election, predestination, being chosen by God, I, I again would direct you to our Salvation and Sovereignty of God mini-series that was back last year in our Second Thessalonians Hope in Christ study. The next foundational truth we see from Paul, also in verse 1, the truth. The truth. He says, and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness. Now, Paul is writing on behalf of this knowledge of the truth. The truth is, Paul is all about truth. He is all about the truth of God, the truth of the gospel, being truthful in his own speech and conduct, proclaiming God's truth to the lost. And Paul uses some similar phrasing, combining knowledge and truth and speaking of the gospel when he says in 1 Timothy 2, 4, that God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And then down in verse 25 of 1 Timothy 2, how repentance leads to the knowledge of the truth. In 2 Timothy 3, 7, there are those who learn and yet are unable to come to the knowledge of of the truth in Hebrews 10 and verse 26 there are those who go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth and so again we equate this knowledge of the truth with indeed God's word the gospel now here's what's unique about how Paul uses this phrase though here in Titus because he combines it with with godliness remember and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness and and this greek word translated as according is used here in the sense of direction to or towards something so this knowledge of the truth then is what directs or leads us to godliness and this is also part and parcel of the gospel. We were talking about this yesterday at our, our uh, kickoff men's breakfast for 2023, which, by the way, boasted some 50 men. I think it was one of our, one of our biggest uh, groups. It was awesome. And, and we talked about how the gospel saves, but then the gospel doesn't just end with our salvation, right? It also sanctifies both. We need the gospel each and every day, friends, because it does both. So the knowledge of God's truth will lead to the forgiveness of sins and eternal life, but it will also lead to godly living, holy conduct. And when we get to Titus 2, verses 11 to 12, we'll read this. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously and godly in the present age. And we'll delve into this deeper when we get there. But suffice it to say that with Jesus appearing with his message of salvation for those who would believe this message, there is also this instruction to put off. Put off ungodliness. Put off worldly desires. And to put on sensible, righteous, godly living. 
We see something similar from Paul to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 7 to 8 when he tells him, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life, but also for the life to come. You, you think, what an awesome twofold reason for godliness. That it is profitable for us right here, the here and now, but it's also profitable for the life to come. Eternal life. And you think, okay, well, how so? Friends, while you're, you're godly living, no doubt will be a, a turnoff to some. For others, it will be a tremendous attractor. A, a sweet aroma of the knowledge of God in every place so says paul in second corinthians 2 14 and then paul says right after that in 2 15 to 16 for we are a fragrance of christ to god among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing to the one an aroma from death to death to the other an aroma from life to life and who is adequate for these things in other words, friends, think about this. Your, your godliness, it, it puts off a fragrance. It, it leaves behind in a, an aroma. And some people will absolutely love it and be blessed by it. And yet others will be repelled. And some of these will be unbelievers who are attracted to you and will want to know more about this aroma, what they see in you, what they hear from you, what they experience as going on in your life and, and want what you have and gospel opportunities will present themselves and some will indeed even put their faith in Christ Jesus. And it is also true that your godliness will have a positive effect on those inside the church, even amongst other believers who will be blessed by your godliness, by your Christ-likeness. And new believers even may see you as an example of someone to follow, someone to emulate. And we would say that's biblical. We are to be imitators of other godly people. In Hebrews 13 and verse 7, we are told, Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. <clears throat> now, secondly, your godliness is also profitable for the life to come. And, and this is what will allow all of us as believers to hear those just sweet and amazing words, well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Don't you want to hear that? Don't you long to hear those words? I know I do. How about Matthew 6 and verse 21? When Jesus tells us, store up for yourselves treasures in the earth. Wait, no. No, he says, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. So godly living, friends, equals treasure in heaven. This brings us to our our fourth foundational truth, the promise. The promise, now we're into verse 2, where Paul says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. You know, this is just an age-old hope, wish, desire, right, for eternal life. Uh, there are even, you know, legends of such desires, the fountain of youth and all of that, this mythical spring, which allegedly restores the youth of anyone who drinks or bathes in its waters. Tales of such a fountain have been recounted around the world for thousands of years. And based on these many legends and explorers and adventurers, they have all looked for this elusive fountain of youth. The legend became uh, especially prominent in the 16th century when it became associated with the Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon, the first governor of Puerto Rico. Ponce de Leon was supposedly searching for the fountain of youth when he traveled to Florida in 1513. Found Florida. Now, I've always known that Florida holds the key ever since seeing the movie Cocoon, right? Because when you go to Florida and jump in a swimming pool with alien pods, then you start to get younger. There you go. So that just makes sense. Keep your mark there on Titus. Turn to 2 Timothy for just a moment. 2 Timothy. Should just have to back up even a page or two. 2 Timothy in chapter 1 verse 9. Now, the truth is, eternal life, of course, real eternal life, can only come from God. The God who gives life and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is described as the firstborn from the dead. Because he has life after death, eternal life. And since Christ resurrected, we are given the hope of resurrection ourselves. Which is really to say a promise of resurrection promised by God even long ages ago. Now, 2 Timothy 1, 9 to 10 summarizes this beautifully when Paul writes of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from when? All eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You say, well, how do I know that's true? Well, back in Titus chapter one, verse two, because he says in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago. It's not in God's character to lie, friends. It's it's in that sense an impossibility because his attribute as the God of truth and the source of all truth, it, it doesn't even allow for him to lie. It's absolutely impossible for him to lie. If God could lie, then guess what? He would cease to be God. He would not be God. Now, of course, eternal life 
is important for the church because it's what we it's the the hinge that hangs all of Christianity on. We are saved so as to be forgiven of our sins and have eternal life, eternal life specifically with Christ. That's the whole point of eternal life. It's not that we just get to, you know, jump around or fly around or whatever we're going to do and enjoy this incredible new heavens and new earth, though that is true. But it's the fact that we get to be there with the Lord Jesus Christ for all eternity. As he says in John 17, verse 3, this is eternal life. In other words, here's the definition of eternal life. This is eternal life that they, right, followers of Jesus, may know you, Jesus praying to God the Father, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's what it's all about. To know Christ, to be with Christ in his kingdom for all eternity. Well, this takes us to our fifth foundational truth of the church, which is the word. The word. Look at verse 3. Back in Titus, turn a page or two back. But at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. Now there's there's a little bit of tricky wording here that we just want to be clear on. We have this conjunction, but, which connects these two phrases. In other words, what God had promised long ages ago, which we learned is eternal life with what has been now manifested or made known at the proper time. So this hope of eternal life and God's perfect timing has been revealed, made known, even as word. We know that God has revealed what he wants us to know about eternal life through his word. The very word that Paul says he is proclaiming and and now some might think well it kind of sounds like like paul means jesus there you know jesus was manifested at the proper time to bring us eternal life and that wouldn't be wrong to say if we were to go out and consider other biblical writings such as the apostle john who identified jesus as being the word right the logos when he said in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God, clearly there associating the word logos with the Lord Jesus Christ. However, Paul, he never gives Jesus this this same title of logos, though he does equate Jesus, the person, along with his teaching and all of his complete redemptive work with the gospel. That which Paul was proclaiming. And so Paul has some interesting phrases, right? He says things like, we preach Christ crucified or Christ is preached or or preaching Christ or proclaiming Christ. Christ is proclaimed. And of course, Paul was entrusted with this proclamation of Christ and his gospel by God, our Savior's command to him. Paul's authority came directly from God himself through his son, Jesus. And this goes back to when, again, Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Emmaus when he told Paul, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but get up 
and enter the city and it will be told you what you must do. That's from Acts 9 and verse 6. And then uh, you remember that character uh, Ananias, I shouldn't say character, the man Ananias, uh, commanded by God to go to Paul, quote, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel, to which Ananias said to Paul, the God of our fathers has appointed you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear an utterance from his mouth. And then this is summarized by Paul in Galatians chapter two, verse seven, when he says, I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, right? To the Gentile, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. So, so Paul was, was clear on what he had been called to do. Now, what's, what, what I think is kind of cool about this phrase, God, our Savior, is that little word, our. Because we see here that Paul is making a reference to the fact that God is the savior of the Jews like himself, but he's also including Titus and therefore the Gentiles as well. And what we see here, friends, is the foundational truth that the church is indeed built on the word of God. It is it has as its foundation the gospel message that makes up the word of God, of course, with its head being Jesus, the chief cornerstone, the very word himself. And then lastly, here we have the leader, the leader. Verse four, churches need leaders to Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God, the father and Christ Jesus, our savior. Paul is here acknowledging the bond that unites he and Titus together, the common faith of the gospel of Jesus. And of course, this is what unites us as the church universal and what unites us too in the sense of each local church. And I think it's, I think it's interesting to note that while Paul sees Titus as being someone closer to him than even some kind of blood relative, calling him his true child in a common faith. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting because there are people that put a lot of emphasis, right, on the fact that we are blood related with, with somebody. But we see with Jesus when he said this, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my father who is in heaven, he is my brother and sister and mother. You know, Jesus wasn't denigrating his his mother or his brothers, but I, I think we can infer from this that that spiritual ties in the common faith of the gospel are are stronger and I might say even more important than just mere physical blood ties. And then lastly, as he often does, Paul gives Titus his customary greeting when he says grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, again, our Savior. 
This, along with Paul's previous acknowledgement of God as Savior, just demonstrate the mutual redemptive work of both Father and Son. That both Father and Son are included here as Savior. Once again, Paul employs that hour, giving significance to the fact that Jesus is Savior of not just Jew, but Gentile as well with the Father. So, so what does this mean for us? What does this, this, this grand opening kind of teach us, tell us? What should we take away from this, this time in the Word? I think I'm just going to, I'm going to pose some questions for you to consider and think about. Ask yourself, Am I truly a sold-out slave for Christ? Or do I see myself as just kind of a more, you know, servant? Not to say that that's wrong, but, but is, it, is it doulos that you are committed to, that, that you see yourself as that slave of Christ? Or, or do you see yourself in a little more of that wet, noodly, fair-weather Christian kind of vein? Ask yourself, do I find encouragement knowing that I've been chosen by God before the foundation of the world to have faith? Is that an encouragement to you that though you were dead in your trespasses and sins, God made you alive and he chose to make you alive even before the foundation of the world? And and if you're not sure, if you're not sure if you are part of this Chosen, here's the deal. Here's what you do. You repent and believe in the gospel. Guess what? You know you're the chosen. You absolutely know that your name was written in the Lamb's book of life. And that would be my encouragement to you. Anyone here that needs to do that, do that this morning before you leave here. Put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. The one who has forgiven your sins, the one who's went to the cross on your behalf, who died in your place, who whose body was put into the ground three days later, but but conquered death by resurrecting from the dead and who now lives on in you through his Holy Spirit. Believe, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and know that indeed you are his chosen Next, ask yourself, is the knowledge of God's truth cultivating godliness in my life? Is my time in the Word and my time at church and my time in Bible studies and my time in my small groups, etc., are these things changing my life from the inside out? Is godliness being cultivated? And if not, you would have to ask yourself why. And I would reckon to say, first and foremost, that there could be some sin in your life that you would need to deal with. Next, what does it mean that I have the hope or promise of eternal life? What does that mean for you? Does does this this truth excite you? Does it get you through the day? Does it keep things in the right and proper perspective for you having that eternal perspective? I mean it should, right? And then some. And then lastly, What is my responsibility in proclaiming the word of God? We know that Paul was called to proclaim the word of God. How do we proclaim it individually? Certainly as a church, 
Do we as a church accurately handle the word of truth? Do you all as individuals, when you're talking with somebody about God, about his word, about the Lord Jesus Christ, do you accurately handle the word of truth? Let's go ahead and pray. Father God, we do thank you. We thank you so much for your word of truth. We thank you for all that has been conveyed to us through the apostle and even these these four verses, uh, these foundational truths about the church. Lord, I pray that we would seek to uh, uh, apply these truths to our lives, that we would ask ourselves these questions, that we would ponder and think deeply about them, and that, Lord, if we realize that we need to make some changes that we would do so by your help, by the help of the Spirit, through your word, even using other other believers in our life. And Father, I do pray that Calvary Bible Church will continue to be a transformed church, transformed by the gospel for the sake of the gospel. And Lord, we pray all of these things in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. Scripture quotations taken from the New American Standard Bible. Copyright by the Lockman Foundation.